Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, you who can change us, purify us, you can, who can keep us advancing toward the fulfillment of your will and the understanding of your word, Father, we ask that now as we open your word, the word given, the word preserved, the word brought to us today in convenient form, Oh, Father, may it impact us. We've sung about the ancient words, and, and here we hold them in our hand. Before we go, Father, make sure many of them penetrate and stick in our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are after Palm Sunday and Easter, back in the book of James. We started James some weeks ago, and we've covered almost... Well, pretty much at the end of today, the first chapter. Isn't that great? We'll see how we keep pushing on through. But here we are learning how to handle the various circumstances of life. Those circumstances that we encounter every day in this fallen, sinful, increasingly God-denying, God-defying society in which we live. And so the title of today's message is Handling the Word of God. We sang about the Word of God specifically today. And now James would want to tell us how to handle it. How to handle it well. We're aware of it. Lots of parts of it. But how do we handle it? Especially in confronting the world in which we live in. Guarding us from the things that are in. How does the word of God and how should the word of God be handled by those who belong to God? That's who James was writing to. You remember that wonderful New Testament church in Jerusalem. Thousands strong. And due to persecution they got scattered through the entire Roman world around them. No longer in a, in a happy little cluster there in Jerusalem. And so James writes to them. He says, you'll be encountering all kinds of stuff that you didn't have to face while we were here in the mother church. But now you will and you need to know some things. And he begins to identify circumstance after circumstance that were true in their day and we've been discovering they're just as true in our day. How do we become mature in the midst of a world like this and show ourselves to really belong to God? Today, how in fact are we to handle the word of God? I've got some of it. In fact, I've got all of it. There's no words of God that are not in this book. Amen? Amen. Not found in any other book. So I got them all. If you've got your Bible with you, you've got them all. If you have it on a phone or a tablet, well, in there somewhere is it all. Just don't let it get mixed up with other stuff. Well, here it is. So today, 
handling the Word of God. James is going to share with us some pretty pertinent stuff. Might even be some challenging stuff. So let's get going. Follow along with me as I read today's key scripture. It's James 1, verses 22 to 25. And and just see how much key counsel from James jumps right out at you. And you might say, wow, I could make up my own message here. It's all just hitting me right in the face. Just see if it happens. Here's today's key scripture, James 1, verse 22. James says, do not merely listen to the word. You know what a preacher's hope is? That somebody out there is listening. James assumes you're listening, so he says, do not merely listen. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. For some of us, that's good. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing with you two key self-deceptions. James says, do not deceive yourselves. Most of us are very good at that. The greatest deception we ever have to fight against is really not what the devil brings, but it's really what we come up with ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We come up with stuff that isn't true and we believe it. We come up with stuff that won't work and we try it. So James says, just as a general direction here, do not deceive yourselves. Well, with regard to handling the word of God, I'd like to share with you two, what I'm calling self-deceptions this morning that probably come into play in all of our lives from time to time. Here's the first one. Self-deception one, hearing God's word and knowing what it says fulfills my Christian responsibility. There are people who can be tempted to think that's true. Knowing, hearing God's word and knowing what it says. There are people will run around the world either personally or online, to hear great preaching and teaching. The more we hear, the more we can get, the better we are. Got to hear more, got to hear more. I'm so hungry, people say. Churches used to uh, believe that more than they believe it now. You realize the first church I pastored, every week I had to prepare five messages. I was 25 years old. That is, I turned 25 in the middle of my first week in the ministry. I was 24 that first day. I had to prepare in this little church in Durango, Colorado. They'd been there forever. It was an established church. It wasn't really that little. I had to prepare to start with a radio meditation that went on the air at 6 o'clock Sunday morning. Moments for meditation. Yay, I'm a radio preacher. And they had done this for years. I'd never even 
of course, been in a radio studio, never knew how to cut a tape. But by the time I was done, I was running that thing like an experienced DJ. I could go in there and do the 15-minute program in 16 minutes. <laughs> First time I went out there, it took me, I think, two and a half hours, and Linda said, where were you really? <laughs> Sunday morning, 6 o'clock, good faithful member of the church would turn on the radio and hear Pastor Mark give the meditation of the morning. Start off with a thought. Some word of God. Then we'd go to church and I'd teach a Sunday school class. Naturally, since Linda and I were barely old enough to qualify as adults, we started a young married Sunday school class. Everybody else in the church weren't so young. (laughs) Though there were a lot of marrieds there. So we taught a Sunday school class. That's two. And then right after the Sunday school class, before you could really even catch your breath, you went right into the morning service and preached the Sunday morning sermon. And then that church, like most in that day, see, I'm talking about last century, (laughs) had an evening service. And that required a message. And then guess what else was in the middle of the week? Wednesday, prayer meeting, and that required a teaching time. I think the church was set up just trying to figure out if I got anything on a seminary or not. Until I realized the old man who retired in front of me had to do the same things. So if you're a faithful member of that church, you get five impacts of the word of God every week. Man, you're hearing it, you're hearing it, you're taking it in. You might enjoy every one of them. And you might think that by hearing them all, enjoying them all, even a little bit remembering some of them all, that you are fulfilling your Christian responsibility. Take in the word. Take in the word. Some people seek out the word wherever they can find it, and they're forever seeking it. They'll go anywhere. They'll tune in to anything if the guy is good, and they listen, and they listen. Other people have invested hundreds of dollars and hundreds of hours in buying and reading great Christian books. They, they got a library full at home, and they actually have read them all open them up, and some of them are underlined and highlighted. These are people that know lots of stuff. And they feel that by knowing it, hearing it, taking it in, they're fulfilling a basic Christian responsibility. James says to us, not necessarily. Not necessarily. More is not always Better. 28 years ago, we decided to, to experiment. To experiment. We started this church, and I, I thought, and Linda and I thought together, what would it be like if instead of feeding people a, you know, a banquet with all kinds of stuff during the week, where they're trying to decide, well, which of this should I really remember and pay attention? What if we just had one lesson a week? One lesson a week. Of course, the fleshly side of me said, wow, wouldn't that be great? 
spiritually speaking, what if there's one lesson a week on Sunday morning, no Sunday school, no evening service, no Wednesday night, but we would have small groups where we would then carry on and discuss that one lesson that we heard Sunday morning. And hopefully it would relate to other lessons that we've heard so that we can get certain thoughts in our minds and let them sink down and think about them, discuss them. Might it be better than just taking in an avalanche of truth that just, we can't even think about the first one because the second one's coming and then the third one is coming, then the fourth one is coming, then the fifth one is coming and by the time next Sunday comes, it's like you're just wiping the deck and starting all over again. So we tried that 28 years ago. I don't know. Does it work? Are, are, you, are you finding that if you have a single truth a day to kind of a week to sort of meditate on and discuss with others and, and that it's better than having 10 of them? They just kind of flow in and out so fast, so quick. Now, I know some of you probably hit a Christian station every single day, all week long. You're still flooding your stuff, saying, boy, the more I hear, the more I know, the better I am. James would say, not necessarily. You see, a person like that might well be deceiving themselves. Because that's a, that's a self-deception. To say, hearing God's word and knowing what it says fulfills my Christian responsibility Don't deceive yourself that way. Here's a second one, self-deception too. A quick, easily forgotten glance into God's word is better than nothing. How many of us on a busy day, just before we fly out the house, at least we pick up a prayer promise from a little card deck or something, or we open the Bible and say, oh, I've got to read something today. Oh, yeah, let me read that. And then out the door you go. Well, at least it's better to have a little word than no word, right? truth is that quick glance into God's word might in fact be worse than no glance at all. For those who take such quick glances might wind up thinking this. They might wind up thinking that they know the word better than they actually do because at least they confront it every day. And they may think that they are obeying it more than they actually are. They wind up deceiving themselves. I'm in the word every day. Sometimes it's while I'm driving down the road. Sometimes it's while I'm running out of the house. I get some little glimmer here or there. They deceive themselves. James says, don't do that. You see, instead of merely hearing or quickly glancing which both wind up being unfruitful and even damaging ways to handle the word of God, James shares with us in this passage of scripture what I'm calling today three, three fruitful ways to handle God's word. Now, these three, and it's been two weeks since we read the previous verse, so let me remind you, these three ways today expand upon what James said just one verse earlier, though for us it was two weeks ago. Two messages ago. Verse 21 says this, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. 
Remember when we talked about that? Humbly accept the word of God which the Spirit plants in us, which gets planted into us in a variety of ways, and that word, James, can save you. We talked about that. Talked about that. Well, in this passage now, James is actually expanding that, that word accept to include some other things. Three things, in fact. Here's the first. James would say, look into it. That is the word of God intently. He says, whoever looks intently into the word of God. Here, James used the very same word. You know, it is translated intently. The very same Greek word that is used to describe Mary on Resurrection Day morning in John chapter 20, verse 11, when it says, Mary bent over and looked into the tomb. Same word. Do you think she looked casually? You think she looked, uh, you know, just momentarily? She looked into the tomb. The stone is rolled away. It's like, well, is Jesus in there waiting for us to find him? She looked and looked around. And she didn't see Jesus in there, but she did see two, two men in white, angels at the end of the, the gravestone there, the table that was there. But she looked intently. Just imagine what kind of intent and energy you would have if you were looking into the tomb that morning. And John says that's the way we should look into the word of God. Look into it intently. You see, understanding the word of God takes more than just a glance. It takes more than just the momentary thrill of hearing a great sermon or reading an inspiring Christian book. It takes some concentrated effort. Peer into it. Look around. And as you do so, let me just recommend a method. Some people call this the inductive Bible study method. If you're reading, especially through the Gospels, you read it and then discover the who and the what and the where and the why of the passage that you're reading. Make some observations on it. Draw some conclusions and formulate some applications for your own life. Do you realize you could write your own Bible commentary? I've encouraged some of you to do that, and I know some of you have done that over the years. Take the Gospel of Mark. Take the Gospel of John. Take the Book of Romans. Read a passage, and, and on your, well, these days, on your iPad with your magic pen, just make comments about it. That's what a commentary is, a set of comments about the Word of God. And you can write your own. And you will be blown away what the Spirit reveals to you, and then years later you can come back and here you have your, your little bunch of paper if you're still writing on a yellow pad or you'll have inside your device all of this, these comments. See, that's looking intently at it and saying, what is it saying? Who are in, who's involved here? What's going on? Why did it happen? Where did it happen? And what does that mean? What does that mean? I tell you, it'll mean something to you when you do it. And later, when you come back and read it, it won't be like this was just you getting brilliant. It'll be like you're reading stuff that, 
that is God speaking to you. It's God speaking to you. And it, it speaks to you even better than picking up somebody else's commentary. Even though it's nice to know the accurate facts and stuff, but when you read the stuff the Spirit's revealed to you and how you in that moment saw it applying to your life, you say, man, this, is, this feeds my soul. Well, of course it does. It fed your soul the first time. It's the way the Holy Spirit was working God's truth into you and, and it'll, it'll do the same thing every time you read it. It's yours. It's the result of you looking intently and discovering things. Ask the Spirit of God to guide you as you do so. Now, here's a second way to fruitfully handle the Word of God. After we look into it intently, as we do so, we need to secondly consider it to be perfect. That is, without flaw. James says here, anyone who looks intently into the perfect law. That's what James viewed the Word of God as being. Perfect. Not something we can add to, not something that we can correct, not something that we can discard, but something that is so perfectly expressing the truth of God that it just stands inviolate. Jesus once said to some folks who were uh, arguing with him, and he was responding back to them. And right in the middle of his response, after he had given them a, a bit of a scriptural statement, he says this, and the scriptures cannot be broken. John 10, 35. The scriptures cannot be broken. We need to believe that. When you read the word of God, you've got to say this is God's word, the eternal holy God who has delivered to us truth. See, Jesus possessed what some would call a high view of Scripture. Used to be a day when that was just your view of Scripture. But you realize there's high views and low views of Scripture. Even in the churches of America today. There are people who even this morning would be saying something like I'm saying that the word of God is pure and true and perfect and cannot be broken. And there are others this very day in pulpits in our country who are saying, maybe not these exact words, but meaning the word of God needs to be taken with a grain of salt. This is a different day we live in than what the Apostle Paul lived in. There's different applications to, to God's truth. And, and we don't even have to believe that all the things in the Bible actually happen the way the Bible reports them because we realize we're in an enlightened scientific age and these things were, were written down in a much more primitive time and we've got to understand that. That's a low view of Scripture. And in some places, the view of Scripture being expressed is getting lower and lower and lower until after a while it's nothing more than words written down by kind of religious people. And if they speak to your heart, good. If they don't speak to your heart, just realize yeah, that was a different time, different people. That's a low view. Used to be Jesus' high view was the only view you'd find in any Christian church, any group of believers, where Jesus says the scripture just absolutely cannot be broken. It's the word of God. It cannot be found false or misleading. 
It can buttress any argument. It can settle any debate. Well, here's what the Bible says. (laughs) I was raised on that. Well, Mark, what does the Bible say? Whatever question you're asking, whatever you're, you're saying, well, Mom, is it okay if? She never told me it was okay or not okay. Because now I just have my mom to argue with. And I, you know, you know, there's times you know you're smarter than your mom. <laughs> so she would just say, well, Mark, what does the Bible say? Now, am I going to actually say, well, I know what it says, but I'm smarter than the Bible. Now that... I would believe the, the roof of the house would open and fire would come down. So I'd never say that. And so that's what she would say. Well, whatever the Bible says, that settles it, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Whatever the Bible says, that settles it. It can settle any debate. Jesus was in the middle of a debate with people when he quoted the scripture and he said, and by the way, the scripture can't be broken, so don't argue. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God's word if you don't accept what I say. See, James obviously had that view too. He called it the perfect law. James was very possibly thinking of the words of the psalmist David, who wrote in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting, that is transforming, renewing, refreshing the soul. That's how David viewed the word of God, and he had so much less of it to deal with than we do. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Those who consider the word of God to be perfect do not neglect it or question it or look for ways to get around it. They see it. For the treasure trove of truth that it is. And once they do, it's the most natural thing in the world, in God's world that is, to apply this next step. James would say, thirdly, make it a lifestyle. He says, exactly, anyone who continues in it. See, looks into it intently discovers what it says, and then continues in it. So we use our term, makes it their lifestyle. Remember these words that lay at the heart of last year's Red Letter Living series? I just put them in a little bit more imperative form today. Matthew seven twenty four. Jesus says, Hear these words of mine. See, hear them. Mold them around. Hear these words of mine and put them into practice. It doesn't help at all to go running around saying, hey, I heard Jesus say, I heard Jesus say, I heard Jesus say. And people say, well, what are you doing about that? Well, I'm telling you what Jesus said. And some believers, that's as far as they get. If I know the word, if I embrace the word, and especially if I share the word, Well, that's my full Christian responsibility, but James is saying we need to do the word. Continue in it. Jesus says, put these words into practice. Make it a lifestyle, I'm saying. You see, putting God's word into practice is the ultimate way 
to handle God's word properly and fruitfully. And then what happens when we do? Well, in the second part of this passage this morning, I can identify two great outcomes of handling the word of God properly. But don't even think about these coming into your life until you're handling the word of God properly. See, what we're going to say now isn't just more stuff for you to know. Hey, I heard it. I know it. I can tell somebody else about it. These two outcomes will not come in your life or my life. It only comes to one who is properly handling the word of God, which means looking at it intently, considering it to be perfect, and building it into a lifestyle of behavior. But when we do that, when we even seek to do that, when our intention is to do that, here's a couple of things that happen. This is what happens. What comes of handling the word of God properly, of building a lifestyle around it. Number one, great outcome in your life is freedom. Freedom. James says, whoever looks into the perfect law that gives freedom. That's what God's word's intended to do, to provide freedom for us. But we got to look into it. We got to understand it. We have to accept it. We have to make our life built around it. And when we do, that word of God gives freedom. Now, let me say quickly it's not freedom to do whatever you want, but it's freedom to enjoy life as God intended it to be. Freedom from all the bondages that sin brings into one's life. So let's point out several such freedoms this morning. First of all, we could say there's freedom from guilt and debilitating regret. Are those words we understand? Do we have a personal relationship and knowledge of guilt? And even a debilitating regret? David said in Psalm 51.3, my sin is forever before me. And knowing David's story, we could probably say, which one? David had a bunch of sins, but he had the real, really big one. The sin of adultery, the sin of murder that it led to. He says, my sin is forever before me. Believers who fail to handle God's word properly frequently fall into sin. And with that sin, eventually, if they're born-again people, eventually comes guilt. Boy, have I messed up. I've done wrong. And then regret. I feel terrible about it. David was confessing, I can't stop thinking about it. It's forever right in front of me. And it might have been a long time after he committed it. It might have still been there on his deathbed. It's forever before me. You could say, if I just hadn't committed that sin. This wouldn't have happened, and that wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't feel so horrible. I wouldn't feel like I, like I can't even hold up my head in, in the company of my family and friends as they've discovered what I've done. Oh, that's a bondage. 
That's a bondage. Guilt and the debilitating regret that can come. You see, even when we as believers, let's be honest here, even when we repent of it, we surely can experience God's gracious forgiveness. Our Abba focus that is listed in the bulletin today says, my Abba is magnificently merciful. All the things he's lifted from our shoulders. But the truth is, we can experience God's gracious forgiveness, but there's a blot on our personal record, and we know it. We know it. Now, I'm not saying God reminds us of it, because he's a gracious forgiver. But you know, sometimes our memory is better than God's. Because when God forgives, he, for, he forgets, right? Puts our sins as far away as the east is from the west. But... <laughs> Our memory gets zeroed right in on all this stuff. We remember the worst things about us rather than remembering our high points. David was experiencing some of that. Wouldn't it be good to never have grievous sins in your life? If you build your life around the word of God, you know, the spirit stops us from going there by reminding us of the word of God, and we ourselves said that would not be pleasing to God. I cannot do that. That would be harmful to so much. And we stop ourselves. Remember, James told us how to handle temptation? Well, that's all part of it. And you handle temptation by knowing from God's word that what you're contemplating is a temptation to sin. But if we avoid the sin, we avoid the guilt, and we avoid the debilitating regret that can come from it. Oh, there's a, there's a much better way to live. And it's living by the teachings and the principles of God's word. Here's a second freedom I would point out this morning. Building our lives around the word of God, doing the word, can give us freedom from doubt and endless deliberation. Have you ever, are you one of those people that rethinks stuff? I thought it, then I rethought it, then I thought it again, then I rethought it, and then I kind of half did it, and then I came back and rethought what I was doing, and, and, and that's, a, that's a real prison. That's a real prison. And when it comes to a Christian, when you're trying to think your way through living the Christian life, to have doubt about what you're doing, to have endless deliberation about what you ought to be doing or could be doing, we run smack into the fact, as Jeremiah reported, Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is deceitful above all, all things. Have you noticed that once you got saved, your heart didn't stop trying to deceive you? The heart is deceitful. God gives us a new heart, but doesn't take the old one out. And our fallen nature will continue to seek to deceive us into things that are, are damaging and, and displeasing to God. See, believers who fail to handle God's word properly regularly fall prey to the deceitfulness of their own human heart. They are forever trying to figure things out. They're forever trying to find ways to bring a sense of purpose to their life. 
Oh, it has saddened me through the years, distressed me through the years. How many times Christians say, I'm trying to find God's purpose for my life? I'm trying to find God. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? I'm trying to find God's purpose for my life. Usually what it means, I've tried everything under heaven and I'm hoping one of my things matches up with what seems to be his purpose for me and I, I fall into a, a good life. God's purpose is that we become like Jesus Christ. Can you do that driving a school bus? Sure. Can you do that building a building? Sure. Can you do that mothering children? Yes. Can you do that in almost any thing you might actually spend your time doing that you discover a skill at or you discover of necessity you must do. But God's will, his purpose, is that all of us become like Jesus Christ. And all the rest is just details. But people go running around trying to find God's purpose, God's calling. Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? You know... God's word doesn't tell us to go on a quest like that. If we knew the word of God, we wouldn't get caught up in that. We might picture God just the way he is at times in heaven, say, Man, I can't, I'm, I'm just waiting to see what Mark's going to do. I give him wisdom through my Holy Spirit. I give him the word that he sometimes pays attention to and sometimes neglects. But the truth of it is, I've called him to be like my son, and I can continue that process no matter what he gets into on that earth. I can't wait to see what he's, what he's going to do physically in the process of allowing me to change him, to mold him, as we sang today, into the image of Christ. Well, we know that. Well, we know God's word says that, then freedom from doubt and endless deliberation is something God's word brings us when we handle it properly. But if we don't, we're endlessly deliberating about our own best choices, our own best lives, and, and we have doubt about this and doubt about that. People like that can wind up challenging the teachings of God's word. They doubt and they deliberate. They're double-minded and unstable. Their life decisions and their Facebooks, Facebook posts show it that they are exactly that. Up one day, down the next day, unstable and in all things. It's like there, there's nothing really you can count on because they're all over the place. And as a result, they walk down many unproductive paths. They live at the mercy of their unsurrendered heart. Those who build a lifestyle around the clear expectations of the word of God, though, they live free of doubt and endless deliberation about how they are shaping their own life. Now, here's a freedom that money can't buy. Freedom from fear of discovery. Don't raise your hand. But has anybody in here ever done something that you just hope nobody would find out about? Probably started when you were pretty little. Maybe it was something happened just this week. Oh, I hope he doesn't find out about this. 
Moses told the people way, 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 way back in the beginning, Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, it says, your sin will find you out. Forgive me for bringing up her name again, but my mom knew that verse. It could have been on the refrigerator. (laughs) Mark, be sure your sins will find you out. Just because you can fool me about something, just because I don't know, God sees everything. He knows everything. And what you do has a way of coming to light. That's back in the days when teachers and parents were allies. You couldn't do anything at school without your parents finding out about it. And guess what? Your parents never went to school to set the teacher straight. They took you aside, usually privately, to set you straight. It always comes out. How did you know that, Mom? Well, you see... Sooner or later, our sins are always discovered by someone. We know how life works. What's up with you is eventually asked by someone. And until that question is raised by someone outside of us, the Holy Spirit is raising it inside us. What's the deal? What are you doing? Why did you do that? What are you thinking? This is not going to turn out well. If you could just automatically quench the Holy Spirit just for a little bit. Sometimes those are the moments when he's raising those questions. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Why did you do that? This is not going to turn out well. You see, a sinning believer is never a happy camper. Never. The beauty of life lived according to the word of God is that when there is nothing to discover, then there's no fear of anything being discovered. Isn't that a great way to live? No fear of anybody discovering something because there's nothing for them to discover. Even a moment like that feels great. Freedom. It's the first great outcome of handling the word of God properly in this fallen, sin-filled world. Now, here's the second great outcome. Blessing. Blessing. James says, the one who, who continues on, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. That's, that's the great word that Jesus introduced into the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed. It really means just the fullness of life as God desires it to be lived. The abundant life, the good life. He will be blessed in what he does. A couple of blessings we'll go through first. One, the blessing of a clear conscience. Paul says in Romans 9.1, my conscience confirms it. He's talking about something that's important to him that he says, this is how I am. And he says, my conscience is confirming it. You might say, my conscience is clear about this. Clear about it. See, Paul in that passage was defending himself against those who said he had forsaken his own Jewish heritage. He had turned his back on the, his fellow Jews But Paul says that's not the case. He's not forsaken them. 
He's not turned his back on them. He says, in fact, he has great sorrow in his heart for their lost condition. That's, that's what goes on in Romans chapter 9. And then Paul says, and my conscience is confirming this to me. He has no inner angst about the way he speaks to the Jews or about the Jews. He has, and he will continue to preach Christ first to the Jews everywhere he goes. And though his enemies might accuse him of forsaking his people, he knows that's not true. And his conscience confirms that truth to him. And that's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. Paul knows there's nothing that feels better than having a clear conscience. And to know that you have not done anything deliberately wrong. Those who properly handle the word of God are protected from the wrongdoing that would cause their own conscience to rise up against them. So indeed, it's a blessing. Here's a second one. The blessing of a sure pathway. Talked about knowing God's will and so forth before. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I can see, I know where I'm going, and I can clearly see the way. What a blessing. The Word of God points out the path that God wants us to walk. The Word of God provides the instructions for how to walk on that path. And so we could say, do it God's way, and you'll never get lost. Nor will you fail to reach your destination. That's what David was saying. What a blessing. To walk on a sure path pathway. And then finally, we'd mention the blessing of the Spirit's affirmation. A little bit more of Romans 9 verse 1. Paul says, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. You see, it's actually Numa himself who affirms our actions and then tunes our conscience to the dictates of God's word. And so our conscience becomes an ally of the Word of God and of the Spirit of God. And that conscience we were born with is now functioning, and when that says you're okay, it means we're okay with the way God wants things to go because our conscience has been informed by the very Word of God, and the Spirit of God is running the show. So living day by day in fellowship with the one who inspired and provided the Word of God is the ultimate way to build a lifestyle around the Word of God. It's Numa, really, who arouses our interest in God's Word. It's Numa who urges us to look intently into it. It's Numa who enables us to understand it and who motivates us to obey it. So I'd say, read your nudges and hugs. There's 186 scriptural truths in there that are designed to, to help us build our life around something and give substance. It, you know, it's hard to just say, read the book. Read the book. Commit it to memory. I am impressed every time I watch The Chosen. I don't know if you watched it last week, but it was a, it was a great treat to just watch 16 episodes in eight days. But to hear the disciples talking... James and John, especially, who were raised in the faith, you might say. And frequently they would mention to each other 
how many rules there were to follow. Any of you remember how many? 613. From the time they were a little boy and they grew up, now they're adults and they say, boy, I tell you, 613. You know, it, how long would it take to just write them all out? Remember them. You see, it's uh, way too many. Way too many. And a lot of those were just added by the, the rabbis and so forth along the way. Zero in on, on the teachings of Jesus. We spent a whole year in the red letters. Boy, there's enough of them right in there to fill your agenda for the whole rest of your life. This is Jesus teaching his own. Get a couple of, get a couple of the New Testament books that just become your rocks. The book of Romans. The book of Ephesians. These are just filled with the, the things you can look intently into and say, this is what God wants me to be. And this is what I want to be. And then let the, let the Holy Spirit confirm through your own conscience that you actually are building the word of God into your life. And your behavior is being affected by it. So here are our final thoughts. Learning to handle the word of God properly is a tremendous spiritual achievement. I don't, have, I don't have any problem saying that. You realize God wants us to achieve things. He, he wants us to be successful at stuff. So learning to handle the word of God is a tremendous spiritual achievement. And James would say doing that opens the door to both freedom and blessing. And what could be better? Let's handle the word of God, even though we're in the midst of a world that increasingly doesn't even accept it as being real. Let's learn and practice handling it fruitfully and in the face of all the disasters around us, sense blessing and fulfillment, freedom to live and to enjoy. Heavenly Father, we thank you, of course, for your word. We thank you that you chose to reveal yourself and your purposes in written form. That even the living word, Jesus, gave to us a volume of written words. Father, help us to be faithful to look intently into your word, to see everything we can find, to ask every good question about it, to record our findings, to make our observations, to say, this is the way I need to apply this in my life. And then, Father, may we follow in the footsteps of, of the Spirit and write it down. And write it down, lest it become just a momentary insight that is quickly lost. Father, thank you for writing your word down that can stimulate us in this quest. Bless us. Grant us freedom to live the life you've called us to live by the power and authority and instruction of your word. For we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. 
If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.